pray together. Father, that is um, really what we're here to do this morning in worship, is to wait on you. And the great news is we don't worship a God that we have to wait for very long on. <laughs> you send your spirit into our midst to draw us back from the places we've been. You convict us of the choices that we've made. You, you do the miraculous, life-transforming work that only you can do in our hearts until once again our your love is our delight. And we just give you thanks for that this morning, Father. We pray that you would teach us through the book of Jonah uh, what it means to continue to offer our lives back to you in repentance, God, to turn back to you, turn away from our sin, become like Christ, become the people you have created and called us to be. We give you thanks for this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks, team. If you're new with us, we are in the middle of a series called Ruin and Restoration, and it's a, a series that's going, taking us through the minor prophets of the Bible. Now, as we've said you know, repeatedly over the last several weeks, minor prophets doesn't mean unimportant. It just means that you know, it's more about the length of these books in comparison to the major prophets of the Bible, prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Um, some of these are, books are quite short, like we discovered last week, right, when Pastor Matt preached the best sermon any of us have ever heard on Obadiah, right? Maybe the only sermon, but it was the best one. Only 21 verses, actually in length. And Matt did a fantastic job of pointing out to us the beauties of God's grace in that book, even amidst um, the ruins of his judgment. And today, we're going to be looking at the next minor prophet in the list, my favorite minor prophet, the, the minor prophet Jonah. So if you've got your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. Um, again, it's in the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Jonah comes right after Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, right before Nahum and Habakkuk, all right? So hopefully that helps you find your spot. He's probably the most famous of all of the minor prophets because of what happens to him, right? You don't have to be a Christian or grow up in church to have heard the story story of how this guy gets swallowed by a great fish. It was immortalized in a very famous movie in the 1960s, Inherit the Wind, um, which tells the story of the famous Scopes Monkey Trial from 1925 when evolution first began to be taught in the public schools. In that original trial, the agnostic defense lawyer Clarence Darrow cross-examines one of the famous prosecuting attorneys, William Jennings Bryan, who had run for president three times or whatever, on the historicity of the Bible and, and, and the many miracles. And he cites Jonah, this story, as one example among many that proves that the Bible simply cannot be trusted. And I don't know, maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you're a folk, maybe you struggle with how the Bible talks about these things. And if that describes you, I would love to sit down and talk further. I love those kind of conversations and welcome any and all questions here because that's how we grow in our faith. So you can shoot me an email at matt at pepsi.org. No, I'm just kidding. Doug at pepsi.org. And I'm happy to have that. Like I said, that is how we grow in our faith. No question is off limits. Um, that's awesome. Jonah, as I said, is one of my favorite minor prophets because of how I resonate with this man's life. I mean, his life is a picture of repentance and the fact that it's not a linear event. It's really more of a circle. It happens to us over and over and over again as we go deeper and deeper and deeper into the Christian life. It's something that really never ends, all right? Um, jo Jonah never quite gets it. Jonah never quite gets it right. He never fully obeys God. In fact, this book ends with one big giant question mark as God calls Jonah to repent and the reader is left to wonder what actually happened 
happens to this man. Does he actually repent? Does he actually surrender to God? Does he let go of all of his pride and prejudice and anger? Or does he continue to hold on to these things? Well, thankfully, the beauty of the book is not found in Jonah's obedience, but really in the grace of God as he continues to work with and in and through um, this prophet. Um, Though Jonah runs from God, God never runs from him. And though Jonah rejects God, God never rejects him. And though Jonah fights with God on so many levels, God keeps patiently working to bring Jonah back to himself. That's what I love about the story of Jonah, and I hope you do as well by the time we're done here this morning. Um, a little background on Jonah. Jonah was the court prophet in the nation of Israel. What that meant is that he was in the inner circle with, with the king, King Jeroboam, all right? And, and he was a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, though they were not part of that inner circle. Jonah is actually mentioned in another place in the Bible at the end of 2 Kings chapter 14 where he prophesies that Jeroboam II will actually expand the borders of Israel to their ancient boundaries and even beyond. And as a result, and and Jeroboam actually does that, and as a result of that, the fact that his prophecy comes true and Israel kind of reaches the zenith of her power, you can imagine what that did for Jonah's reputation, right? It would have brought him great respect in the court. He would have become known as God's man, God's instrument, a man who would show them how to restore the glory of the nation of Israel. But then comes the second call from God. And this one, (laughs) this one catches Jonah completely by surprise. All right, so Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, of all places, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of of the Lord. You can imagine how shocked Jonah was to receive this word from the Lord. You want me to leave the nation of Israel, the courts of the king, and go to our worst enemy. He was being sent from Israel where he enjoyed this great reputation to Israel's greatest enemy, Assyria, and their capital city, Nineveh, the belly of the beast, one of their great cultural centers, the seat of their power. I mean, just for frame of reference, this would be like us going, like flying over to Mecca and preaching the gospel, you know, during the, the pilgrimage or something like that. that that's, what, that's what Jonah is being called to do. This is the center of the empire, and Jonah is being called there and go tell this bunch of non-Jewish pagan people how evil they are right to their faces. Is it any wonder that he turned and ran the other way? How many of us would have made that same choice, right? Absolutely. Come on. I, I see that hand, Susan. That's right. Um, by the way, Tarshish was supposed to be, uh, to have thought to have been in Spain. No one's quite sure where it was, but, but, but probably like in Spain or somewhere like that. Pretty much the edge of the known world at the time. And so basically Jonah is trying to flee to the other side of the earth to try and escape from God. And so here's God's call, packs his thing. Assuming he's living in the capital of Samaria at the time, he travels 35 miles south to the city of Joppa to find a ship. You can actually see um, the, the, the city here. We'll, we'll show a little picture here in a little bit uh, of the seaport. You can go to this seaport today. If you go to Israel with us, we'll actually go there. You'll get a chance to see it. This is where Jonah went to, right? But, but, but after he secures passage, stows aboard, he thinks all is good. But in fact, what hap- what's happening here? It's Jonah running 
to his own ruin. Because you see, God is faithful. And no matter how far or how fast we run, we cannot escape God. God loves Jonah, and because he loves him, he is never going to stop pursuing him, even when Jonah would run to the ends of the earth. Now, stop and think about the implications of that for your own life for a moment, right? No matter where you've been, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have suffered or struggled, no matter how much anxiety or fear you may carry, no matter how many questions or doubts you may have, no matter the hurt or the abuse or the trauma that you have experienced, God will never let you go. Isn't that good news? God will never stop pursuing you with his love. You can run to the ends of the earth. You can hide in the depths of the earth. You can settle on the most remote places on earth. And God will be waiting for you there. That is how much he loves you. It's just awesome. But there's a flip side to that, right? And and that is this, right? God is so faithful and God loves us so much. He's not going to let us get away with sin. All right, and that's why life is not always easy. It, it sometimes is quite the opposite. It's because God will not sit idly by while we run into ruin. He intervenes. He gets our attention. And that's exactly what happens to Jonah in this story, right? Jonah's sailing towards Tarshish thinking he is, you know, off and he's good and he's scot-free. And then the Bible says that God hurls a storm onto the sea. The Hebrew word there is toll. It appears here in its most intense form, which means God is throwing this storm as hard as he can at this ship. This is no brief rain shower. This is no gentle breeze. God literally is hurling a hurricane into Jonah's path to get him to stop. And this impacts not only Jonah, but all of those folks that he's with as well. Right? And that... that, That's a reality, right? Our sin has a ripple effect. There's a ripple effect to our ruin. None of us is an island, right? And so the things that we do, the things that we get involved in, it ripples out into the lives of those that we love, the those that we are around. And so you can imagine being one of these sailors, right? This is not your fault. (laughs) You have done nothing to deserve this. You're simply caught in the middle of this storm. The seas are raging all around you. No land in sight. The waves are breaking over the ship. All you can see is the darkness of the deep surrounding you. It must have been terrifying. Meanwhile, Jonah is oblivious. Where's Jonah? It's like a sleep in the bottom of the ship. I mean, how clueless does a person have to be to, to not see how their decisions have put others at risk? But I don't know about you. I find that's often the case when I work with people. They don't understand. They can't even see how their decisions, their sinful decisions have now put other people around them at risk. And the people who often need the most help, they're the ones who don't realize it. And they don't recognize their impact on others. The significance of Jonah being asleep in this passage goes beyond the simple absurdity of it all. In the Hebrew, the phrase going down is often a euphemism for death. In other words, when the Bible says that Jonah went down to Joppa and then down into the ship as they set sail and then down into the hold of the ship to catch some sleep, what it's really saying there is that Jonah is dying with each and every step. He's cutting himself off from the source of life and he doesn't even realize it. He can't see it for himself. And the more he flees from God, the more imperiled his soul becomes. And that's why he needs an intervention. That's why God hurls the storm. He wants to save Jonah before it's too late. And what does God want from Jonah? All he wants is repentance, right? That's it. He wants Jonah to embrace him 
as he has embraced Jonah. And this is what happens, right? He's thrown overboard by the sailors. He's swallowed by a great fish. The seas immediately calm. The winds die down. Jonah now finds himself in the belly of a fish where he's there for three days. He's as low as you can go. It doesn't get much more rock bottom than that, right? Being in the belly of a smelly fish at the bottom of the ocean. Can't imagine anything worse. And, and in the midst of all of that, when all hope seems lost, Jonah cries out to God. Listen to what Jonah says. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is Jonah's prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on a dry land. You see, friends, God's plan for Jonah, just like it is for us, is not ruin. It's what? restoration. That's right. Jonah's life has literally been turned around. (laughs) He's no longer headed to Tarshish. He is now on his way in the opposite direction towards Nineveh, where he answers God's call, and he preaches a message of repentance throughout the city. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. As I mentioned earlier, Nineveh was a huge city. It was a massive metropolis. It took three days to get across. And Nineveh was also an ancient city. The Bible mentions it in, in Genesis where it was founded by Nimrod, who was a mighty man before the, before the Lord. Um, and by the, by the way, you can actually see Nineveh today. It's, they're uncovering the ruins in Mosul in, in modern-day Iraq where many of our troops spent time during the Second Gulf War. But when Jonah was alive, Nineveh was the capital city of this empire that was famous for its brutality. Terror was a huge component of the Assyrian foreign policy. 100 years before Jonah, still within living memory of Israel for sure, uh, Assyria was ruled by this king named Ashurnasirpal or something like that. Ashurnasirpal, something like that. Anyway, whatever. He was a self-described tyrant and we actually have writings from this guy. And, And listen to some of the things that this man said about himself. Very, very proud. I cause great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on spikes. I burnt their young men and women to death. I skinned people alive. I hung their skins on the city wall. Okay, that's the king of Assyria, 100 years before Jonah. Now imagine you're Jonah. I mean, he might have even seen something like that as he approaches the city, right? This is a brutal, brutal empire, and yet despite their atrocities, God loved these people. 
God loved these people, loved the people in that city, and he's absolutely resolute in his determination to offer them salvation. That is why he has sent Jonah, and that's why Jonah's not going to get out of this call so easily, because God is relentless, friends, in his pursuit of us, and he wants the whole world to come to repentance. That's exactly what happens. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What does that tell you about the nature and the character of God? Is this not a God we can trust? Is this not a God we can count on? I mean, again, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how bad you think you are. You are never beyond salvation, friends. You're never beyond forgiveness. You never reach a place where God's grace cannot reach you and restore you. Our God is a God of forgiveness, a God who promises to take our sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west from us. I know we all have baggage. We all carry baggage from our past. We all have stuff in our lives that brings us shame. We all have stories that if anyone ever knew, we know they would cut and run, but not God. Not God, right? God will never leave us or forsake us or abandon us. He'll never stop reaching out for us. His grace is truly amazing. It's so amazing that it's also not cheap. It's not easy, It makes demands on us just like Jonah and just like the people of Nineveh. And what is that demand? That demand is repentance. And what does repentance lead to? It leads to restoration. You see, we got to come to the end of ourselves if we're going to truly be used by God. We got to admit that we are broken and weak if God's power is going to be made perfect in us. That's what true repentance is all about. It is humble. It is undemanding. It means coming before God with open hearts and open hands. And that brings us back to Jonah in the final chapter. If you don't know the story, again, Jonah never really gets it. Keeps running into ruin in all kinds of ways. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. This is after Nineveh has repented. Even the cows have repented in Nineveh. And Jonah's ticked off about it. Can you imagine like, you know, like our baptism service or something like that? People like walking out of the service so mad that people are getting baptized. That's what Jonah's doing, essentially. Right? It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. It's better that I die than I live. (laughs) Our translations say that the Ninevites' repentance displeased Jonah. What the Hebrew literally says there is that their repentance was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And he was angry. 
See, what's happening here is a confrontation that has been brewing the entire book. This is no longer about Nineveh. This is a showdown between Jonah and God. And quite frankly, friends, all of life boils down to that showdown. Between us and God. Are we going to submit to him? Are we going to repent? Are we going to offer our lives back to him? Or are we going to hold on to our lives and do it our way? You see, the conflict in our lives, the reason why there's so much struggle in this world is because we are forced day after day after day to come face to face with the reality that we want to go our own way. Right? That we want to do it our own way. We worship idols. We, we remake God in our own image, right? And, and when our God ceases to confront us and instead blesses all our choices and blesses all our decisions and blesses everything that we do in life, we have created an idol. And, I, and idols always, always, always lead to ruin, friends. And that's exactly what has happened here with Jonah. He has remade God in his own image. He even quotes the ancient creed from Exodus, right, about God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is the bedrock truth of the Jewish faith. They repeated it over and over again, much like we do the Lord's Prayer. But sometimes these things become so familiar to us, we forget what they actually mean. We miss out on how radical these statements are. We forget these things are grounded in God's very being. And and that this is what Jonah has done. He wanted a God who looked like him. He wanted a God, a tribal God, who would only be concerned with his chosen people. And when God shatters his image by saving the Assyrians, Jonah becomes angry. He resists this most, more expansive view of God. He wants God in a box, a God who agrees with him, a God who would be on his side and not the side of others. And then when faced with the destruction of his idol, Jonah's whole life and worldview comes crashing down around him and he seeks death rather than life. And, and then again, honestly, this book leaves us wondering if Jonah ever repents, if Jonah ever actually finally finds restoration. You see, friends, the reason why idolatry is so dangerous is because it leads us to self-righteousness. And self-righteousness always leads to ruin. Self-righteousness is what happens when we think we are right and everybody else is wrong. When we think we are good and everybody else is evil. It's not, it's when we don't refuse to recognize differences in our world and instead we get angry, we get bitter, we hold hate in our hearts, right? That, that's what self-righteousness is. And, and it's when we hold on to our rights to have a certain way of life or a, a certain, you know, expectation of how things are going to go or a certain hopes and dreams that we expect will always come true. If that's how we're going to operate in life, what do you think is going to happen when God's going to come along and require something of you that would cause you to relinquish your life? What do you think is going to happen when God comes along and he, he calls you to relinquish your freedom? What do you think is going to happen when God comes along and demands that you deny yourself and pick up a cross and follow after him? That's what happens with Jonah, right? He knows the scriptures. He knows what, that God has chosen Israel to be his treasured possession among all the people on the face of the earth. But he makes the mistake of taking that divine love and turning it into an exclusive relationship that only Israel gets to experience. In short, he takes this good thing, God's love for his people, turns it into an ultimate thing, meaning that God no longer loves anybody else. And therein lies his mistake. And we make that mistake as well. You think about the year that we're about ready to head into with the election. 
You think about all the anger and the hatred and the bitterness that is already filling our airwaves and it's only going to get worse. You think about the name calling and the character assassination that goes on. We have this tendency, friends, to assume the worst rather than the best of others. We have these tendency, friends, to hold on to our anger and our bitterness and our hate, just like Jonah. And we want to attack those who are different than us, and we refuse to extend them the same grace that God has extended to us. We operate off of all these emotions and feelings, and we never question whether these feelings are legitimate or not. Instead, we believe, I'm feeling it, therefore it must be true. And friends, i got to tell you, nothing, nothing can be more foolish than that. All right, and so as we head into this year, as we head into sort of just life, right, as we head out these doors and we encounter people all over the map, people who are close to us, people that are far from us, people that we love, people that we don't love, the call of God from this book is not to continue to dwell in ruin, not to continue to sit in that place, but to repent that we might receive the restoration that God has for us. Here's the good news, friends. 2,000 years ago, God intervened in our world, just like he did with Jonah, right? And he hurls himself into history in the person of Jesus Christ. He hurls himself into the womb of a virgin and is born into this world. Hurls himself into the the cross and takes upon our sin and dies in our place. All this God did for us. He intervenes to save us from ourselves and then he sends us. He hurls us out into the world to deliver this good news. Friends, I know that um, we all walk in here, we all have relationships, we all have stuff going on in life. But here at this table, Jesus calls us to reconciliation. Jesus calls us to extend grace and forgiveness. You can't receive the forgiveness of God and then not extend it out to those around you. That is not how it works. All right? And so as you think about and prepare your heart to come to this table, I want to take us back to where Matt took us earlier. Think about the people that God may have called to mind in your prayer. What are the steps you're going to take to reconcile with them today? How are you going to love even your enemies? In the name of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by his friends, facing his own death at the hands of his own enemies, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, remember what I have done for you. Remember that I have shed this blood for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that every time we eat the bread and every time we drink the cup, we are proclaiming the greatest truth the world has ever known. God loves them so very much that he sent his only begotten son not to condemn but to save amen
So friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on back. I'm going to ask our elders to come on down. Our kids will be coming in to join us as well for communion. Um, here at Pepsi, if you